You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. My name is Jamin. If I haven't met you, I can look around the room I have, so let's forget that. Um, We have been going on a series through the book of Isaiah, and we paused last week instead of moving forward and just said, hey, uh, what exactly is a prophet in the first place? And you all kind of fed into that conversation, and a few definitions of what a prophet is is number one, they hear from God, but number two, they critique so they look at society the way it is and their job is to speak in god's word into society and often that's in critique because let's be honest our world never looks like heaven looks it never quite matches what we need it to look like to meet god's standards so critique is often a place of the prophets and we all love critique don't we yeah and then energizing would be the third one so they hear from god they critique And they energize. They don't just leave people hanging when they energize. They explain that which is to come. So they might energize by saying, you'll be blessed if you do this. Or they might say, they might energize you with, here's kind of the bad stuff that's going to happen if you don't move forward. Or they might energize you with like an explanation. Hey, bad stuff is going to happen, but for the remnant, God will be there. He will watch over you. He will take care of you. So hold on tight because he is coming for you and he loves you, so on and so forth. So prophets hear God's voice, critique, and energize, okay? Now, Jesus was the prophet of prophets, okay? He was the apostle of apostles, the pastor of pastors, the prophet of prophets, the evangelist of evangelists, the teacher of teachers. So if you ever want to see, like, the best person who did all those things right... You look to Jesus, and when you look to Jesus, you see that he had the qualities of the prophet. He heard from God, right? He also, um, he not only heard from God, but he uh, critiqued. Man, some of the language that he has for the Pharisees, like most Christians, you'd think they reserve their harshest words for like the sinners or something, but Jesus reserved his harshest words for the religious types, for the Pharisees. And then he also uh, energized. He told them about resurrection that's coming, that they could stay energized for that. He told them about the kingdom of heaven, which is both coming and already here. He kept them energized for that. So Jesus is like the prophet of prophets. I'll speak into this to amplify a little bit more so I'm not yelling. Uh, And he knew... That as heaven was coming here, which is our, our new mission as 1208, newly stated in Jackson as it is in heaven. As God's heavenly kingdom is coming to earth and invading it, the people of this world are not going to dig that very much. Nobody likes being invaded by another country. And heaven, from a biblical perspective, is this spiritual country that's invading this earthly realm. Okay? In Jackson as it is in heaven. And Jesus comes and he explains just how divisive the kingdom of heaven is going to be in this world. I'd put it up on the screen, but until that goes away, I can't. So uh, Matthew 10, 34 through 39 says, And he knew that the kingdom of... Oh, no, that was me. He said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, 
but uh, anybody know it? Sword, right. So just to clarify really quick, Jesus did not come violently. He taught peaceful tactics as to how heaven invades earth. So he did not come violently, but he did not come saying like, I'm here to make sure everything's just peaceful for now on. No, he taught Christians to live peaceful tactics of heaven, recognizing that the world would see this as like a divisive tactic. And if you haven't preached pacifism before, like I have, let me tell you, people are very angry at you when, <laughs> when you go that route. Hey, there it is. So something as simple as pacifism and peace can even make not only the world angry, but church angry. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Just clarify, Jesus isn't saying hate your family. I mean, the easiest one in there is a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That's pretty natural. But the rest of it, uh, <laughs> just, just kidding. Sorry, I hit a rough spot. Um, the rest of it, though, Jesus is saying, like, you choose me. And my tactics of heaven are going to be so divisive that if you choose to follow me, it's going to turn families against you. And if you choose them over me, you won't be worthy of me. So that's essentially where Jesus is going there. He's not coming in preaching hatred or anything like that. Uh, now, with all this divisiveness in mind between the ways of heaven and the ways of this earth, and with prophetic critique often being very divisive against the people who hear it, someone asked me a question last week after we preached about what prophecy is, and they said, what about unity then, right? What about unity in the church? What do we do with that? Like, is that a thing? What does that look like? And so that's what I want to kind of zoom in on today rather than jump right back into where we left off in Isaiah. Because Jesus cared about unity in the church. In fact, he's got a much longer passage that we'll hop into right now. That is uh, one of, it's a prayer that Jesus prayed. They wrote down his prayer and it's a prayer that he mentions you guys. Yeah, he talks about his apostles, his disciples at first, but when he's done doing that, he goes straight to talking about all the Christians that will come down the road. So if you ever wondered, what would Jesus pray for you? This is the one. Here we go. And this is like one of the most redundant parts of the Bible. So stick with me because it's going to sound like I said the same thing 800 times. I am praying for them. This is Jesus. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, because Jesus is going to ascend into heaven. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one. Even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, Judas, right? That the scripture might be fulfilled, but now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. 
I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, and here's the you part, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. Now will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Uh, first off, if you've ever heard someone praying and they said the same thing over and over again for like 10 minutes, it's biblical. Jesus just did it. <laughs> but secondly, that's a powerful prayer. Like, does Jesus care about unity? According to this passage, oh yeah. If he had his way, just like the Trinity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one and on the same mind, on the same track. If Jesus had His way, His Christians, His followers for the rest of eternity would be a witness to the world by imaging the Trinity to the world perfectly. But uh, it's not that hard to look throughout history and realize we didn't just like mess that up once. <laughs> we messed that up like... Uh, probably every day for the rest of the last 2,000 years, right? Things have not gone. And so there's another thing to learn. Jesus, maybe, you know, he prayed for something and didn't exactly get the hope and answer that he desired because this church has not always perfectly shown the witness of the Trinity to the world. And so the question becomes, like, if there's disunity in the church, since there already is, like, what is worth having disunity about? And so two things that Paul would say to us. Number one, disunity that is appropriate from Paul's perspective is if you're dealing with false teachers. Now, look, false teachers, when we say false teachers, there's two different kind of beliefs in the church. OK, there are core beliefs and then there are side beliefs. There are like the main doctrines of the church. And then there's other stuff that we just like to argue about. <laughs> the core articles of religion. So like us as a free Methodist church, we have these in different chapters in our book of discipline. The first chapter is like articles of religion. We believe as a church that all Christians need to believe these things just to like be a part of the Christian faith. Because if you don't believe in these things, which the Bible clearly teaches, then you're practicing something other than Christianity. Now, that's not just a free Methodist thing. That's like all denominations. And guess what? Across all denominations, most of us are the same on the core principles. That's why we're considered denominations. We're not called cults because <laughs> we haven't taken off in a bad direction. We're called denominations because we are Christians, all Christians who have the core beliefs the same. But then we differ on some other things. 
some of the other things we differ on, like they're not a big deal. Like they don't get you saved one way or another. So like someone over here is like predestination. Everything's set up exactly as it needs to go. And then someone over here is like, no, free will all the way, baby. And then someone in the middle is like, I, I see both, <laughs> you know? Like none of these people are headed to hell for what they believe or aren't practicing Christianity for what they believe on those subjects. They have the same core principles. Jesus died for our sins, was resurrected. We will be resurrected too. These were core principles that, that Paul taught, that Jesus taught, that all the Bible teaches us. And we believe those same things. It's funny to me in the church, so many denominations want to fight and bicker about all the little things that don't matter. And it's nice that I don't see that as much as we used to, but for a long time, that was churches, just going at each other about the little differences between us. I meet with pastors online every Tuesday, and I love it when they bring up like a doctrine that they believe in that the rest of us don't. I love watching it because nobody attacks them. We're all like, yeah, we understand why you would think that based on these passages. Some of us may think something different. If we want to talk about that, let's talk about that. But, you know, we, we don't care one way or another just how essential some of these things are because our faith isn't dependent on it. These are pastors. Pastors not killing each other over different beliefs. <laughs> if the pastors don't have to kill each other, the rest of the church doesn't either. So there are some debates that don't make you a false teacher depending on what you preach because they're not essential to salvation. But these articles of religion, these core beliefs, occasionally someone comes in and starts tossing those out. And Paul saw that as disunity. Now it seems like Paul's being divisive because he might walk into a church like that and say that false teacher has to go. And then a bunch of people who like that false teacher is going to go with them. But in Paul's mind, he's creating unity. He's sending out part of the church that is divisive and to focus in on the, the real church that is following the core beliefs of God. Now, false teachers, you, know, you don't like see a ton of that today. Like, oh, this person is false, this person is false. In the Bible times, it's like plenty of the New Testament chapters. You flip through it. It's like, oh, wow, they had false teachers coming up everywhere. You got to remember, they didn't even have a Bible fully done yet. <laughs> That's part of the reason we made the Bible is so that we could understand what our core beliefs are <laughs> because false teachers kept coming in and changing everything and they would create these like cults that were kind of Christian, but not at all. And so Paul would come in and see the disunity of false teachers and remove them. And you see that all throughout the New Testament. On top of that, uh, unrepentant sinners would be another kind of disunity from Paul's perspective. Now, I'm not, I don't think the Bible's talking about like addiction here. Most people that I've met with addiction are very repentant. They want out. They've been trying to get out for decades. They've been praying, God, would you take this from me? Just like anyone else would with some sin that only came up every once in a while. I think what Paul and what Jesus are talking about when they talk about unrepentant sinners, it's people who, who don't see what they do is wrong don't care to obey Jesus in these certain ways and we'll just continue on this path saying you can all get over it I'm just going to do this anyways you see that like with the dude in Corinth who's doing some things he shouldn't be doing Paul removes him uh, along with in Revelation there's like some other there's like a prophetess who's a false teacher leading people astray and God's giving her time to repent but she doesn't seem to be doing so and so she has to face this judgment as well. So 
you see these moments where people are just like, no, I'm just going to do it. Jesus said those kind of people, like you bring them, you just go one-to-one. You talk with them. If they don't care, well, then maybe grab two people. If you guys agree that this was wrong, you talk with them and they still don't care. Well, maybe three people until finally it gets to the church. So it's not like a somebody in the center toss them out. It's more like a, hey, the church keeps coming before you as a body to say, we really need to grow in this. And not only do you not care, you like think the rest of us are... Are crazy. So Paul would think that people like that occasionally would have to be removed because they were creating divisiveness and disunity. So from Paul's perspective, if you're looking for like bad disunity in the church, it comes from, again, false teaching and then unrepentant sinners who just don't care whatsoever, which is not most people I've ever met. Uh, anyways, um, Removing people, that sounds like division, but it's actually an attempt to prune the church of things that keep it from being unified. I hope we're tracking with that. But then there's another kind of disunity that I think comes from Jesus. Because when you look at Jesus, he created a lot of divisiveness, not only with the world that would eventually hang him on a cross, but also with the people who should have known better, right? His own city in Nazareth tried to toss him off a cliff. They tried to throw him off a cliff. Who does that? <laughs> the Pharisees hate him. They're going to get him hung on a cross. And they don't like being called names by him. They don't like dealing with all this stuff. So you see that Jesus not only created difficulty with the world, but he created difficulty with his own people. He's God in flesh, and if these people are really following him, they should recognize God when they see him, but instead, they kill him. Completely unaware, because they clearly did not know who God was. So there is this kind of disunity that can come in the church because of Jesus, and that's a prophetic kind of disunity, or as some social justice prophets would say today, it's that good kind of trouble. Every once in a while... God raises up someone to raise up a a good kind of trouble, a good kind of difficulty, the kind of good trouble that might land you in jail. That's okay. Jesus went to jail. (laughs) What would Jesus do? Jesus would go to jail, Do, do things like Jesus, right? Sometimes that good kind of trouble will get you in a mess, but that's the kind of prophetic Critique that Jesus gives to us. So if we're really listening to God's voice, occasionally Jesus is going to speak, tell us to do something, we're not going to want to do it. But when we follow through anyways, we are being faithful to our king, to the commander-in-chief, to the one who's in charge of us, to Jesus himself in the country of heaven where we live. So we have to follow Jesus if we will call ourselves Christians. The Free Methodist Church, which we're a part of, was actually somewhat born out of kind of prophetic justice type stuff. We used to be a part of the Methodist Church. Uh, The Free and Free Methodist came about for several reasons, but I'll give you two for right now. The first one was people used to pay for their seats and pews at church, which is ridiculous. You know, like I can't even get you to sit up front for free. But back then, the most privileged people would pay lots of money to sit up front. And then you just keep making yourself way back. And, you know, I'm sure they all show up with the nice little floral bonnets and all these other things. And and until you get to the back and you see that clothing has somewhat deteriorated, things like that. Because you have now all the poor people, 
all the way in the back or even outside of the sanctuary trying to listen in. This was not what Jesus had in mind for the church, a church that was divided socioeconomically, not whatsoever. And so these Methodists around social justice causes like this said, this isn't okay. We need to go to church for free, right? So they became free Methodists. You could know that you could go to church and you didn't have to pay for a pew. You didn't have to tithe your way to the front or whatever it was they did. And on top of that, they also believed in freedom uh, from slavery. And they were an abolitionist movement. They were trying to defeat racism. And so this denomination rises up. Now, Methodists in general at this time were just going with the flow of Life as they knew it, where, well, we always pay for seats. It's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Well, there's always slavery. It is what it is. Whereas these free Methodists start rising up saying, no, that is not enough. Jesus is speaking to us. He's been speaking to us for a long time. And some of us need to rise up and say, this is not okay. And create that good kind of trouble. Create that Jesus divisiveness within the church, within Israel, within the Pharisees and have that, that kind of trouble that, that brings a little bit of disunity to hopefully bring about the light of Jesus' voice. Which I, I like to hope that maybe that's what happened. You know, like you look back now, the, or you look at now, the Methodist church doesn't preach after slavery or, or that you should pay for your pews or anything like that. Who knows? Maybe we had a part in our own history of saying this isn't okay, we're going to fight it. And then helping the rest of the church to be like, you know what, they were right. That's the good kind of trouble that happens when we follow Jesus' voice. Love is not some doctrine you can squabble about. Eh, Should we love? Should we not? Predestination, free will. Love is a core article of religion in the church. If you do not love, and love is not your main principle for everything that you do, You are not following Jesus, and you are not operating as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and you should not be calling yourself a church. Love is the basic principle of everything, for God is love. And when Christianity is unloving, may it be in the past or in today, that needs to be called out. Jesus prayed for unity because he knew that we represent him on earth. And he wants the earth to see a good witness of who he is. Jesus prayed for unity because God himself is truth. And if we can show the world what that truth looks like, they'll catch a glimpse of it in us. Jesus prayed for unity and said in that prayer that he would continue to make God known to us. Not just, well, God, I I went down to earth. We're done now. I'm out. See you. No, Jesus ascended into heaven and then sent the Holy Spirit to us, which other like Acts is going to also call the spirit of Jesus. In other words, Jesus is still with us because Father, Son, Holy Spirit is the same person. Jesus is still with us, teaching us as time goes on. So we should still be prophetically learning. We should still be prophetically speaking into our environment. And that becomes the question for any church of any time. What kind of words might Jesus be continuing to make known to us today? I think it's important that we start listening. 
I expect, and I hate to say this, but I, I expect that the church is going to have a mega falling out over the next few years. One, because usually when someone stops going to church for about three weeks in a row, they fall out of the habit and stop going to church altogether. We now just had like a year for most churches of people not going to church. So it's very easy to fall out of that habit. Two, COVID has caused a lot of tithing and donations go down in a lot of churches. We even have one church in our conference that had just restarted, had a lot of energy, and then had to close down mid-pandemic because it just couldn't afford to continue. It lost all its momentum. And then three, and this is, this is the big one that has to do with this message especially. In the midst of pandemic, the wider church as a whole has been seen by the world as very unloving. I'm not just speaking because I've read an article here or there. <laughs> I'm speaking from even my own experience, just scrolling through anything on the social network, watching all Christians just scream out all kinds of things that do not witness to that trinity of love, that do not witness to Jesus, that would not match Jesus's prayer. Screaming about masks, regardless of what you think about it. Denying safety precautions just to be obstinate. And then calling anyone who follows governmental rules sheep, which is weird. You know, like that's a complimentary term in the Christian faith that we are sheep, right? <laughs> denying and defending racism, treating constitution as biblical truth for some reason. Treating Trump as Jesus's chosen one for some reason, even though it doesn't match Jesus at all in character. Christian nationalism, this idea that somehow America is heaven, which flies in the face of all of Jesus's teaching from beginning to end. I thank God that I grew up in a Christian home. I thank God that I had good parents who imaged God to me well. I thank God that I've been in the church my whole life, that I've seen all the good things it's capable of, because I fear, like Jamin in a parallel universe, who wasn't a Christian before the pandemic, Jamin would have watched what the church acted like in the pandemic and been like, uh-uh, I'm not going to have anything to do with that. Because our witness as a wider church, and I'm not speaking of 1208 necessarily, just as a wider church, has not been good. And I fear that we've lost a lot of our witness and that people will no longer want to listen. It's half the reason, if you've been super annoyed by all the statements I've made on Facebook over the last year, half the reason I'm doing that is because I feel like God has not left himself quiet. He's been speaking this whole time, and that if we're going to be good examples of who Jesus is while the rest of the church is showing something else, then someone needs to speak up, whether it's popular or not. And yeah, I've gotten reamed out on Facebook a few times, but I've also gotten a lot of messages in the background of Christians who either thought that they would have to give up on the church because of the way that the church was looking or thought that all pastors were thinking and saying the same kind of rude things or, or uh, just didn't understand what the church was doing. People that I don't know who have somehow been impacted because they read it. That shows me that the church does care about these things, wants to step into that prophetic stuff of we can be better than this. We don't have to be these divisive people. 
Or we, we, can, uh, we can accept Jesus' prophetic word even though it hurts us and we can live that out rather than be like, oh, Jesus, that hurt. I'm not going to have anything to do with that. We can accept Jesus' words and make a difference. We can step out even when our culture says that's not okay, that's not appropriate. This is the way it's always been. That's prophecy's big turn against the world is it says that that's the way it's always been is never a good reason to continue doing something. Especially when it's oppressive. Especially when it's oppressive to people of, of uh, the least of these. Okay, so just to clarify, we'll wrap up. Pursuing church unity. If you want to pursue church unity first, you need to be firm on your core beliefs and understand that you don't want your core beliefs to like turn into a cult by people just ditching those. The church can't be unified if it becomes another religion or cult. Secondly, you need to chill out about some of these side debates. <laughs> you need to decide, like, is this debate essential to salvation? And if it's not, like, how fierce do I have to be in this conversation? And then thirdly, repent of sin. I understand we all have sin. If you got kicked out of church just because you sin, none of us would be in this room. I wouldn't be in this room. But if we're unrepentant about sin, then we create disunity in the church. And then finally, obey the voice of Jesus. He is still speaking. He is still witnessing to us. And if we want the church to be unified, then we need to obey what he's saying. Even if that brings about a little bit of disunity until everyone starts to catch on to it. Because the prophets often find a lot of disunity with the people that they're speaking to, just like Jesus did to the point that they killed him, right? And if we decide instead to ignore Jesus' words, the core beliefs of who he is and our personal sin, then we have to decide if we're really a part of the unified church or if our own divisiveness has actually put us outside of the church. Because if Jesus is not king of the, the kingdom in which we live, then we're probably not pursuing Christianity, but something else. All right, let me pray for you, and then you can go sports or eat chicken wings or whatever it is. God, I thank you for time to come together to talk about you and to just open ourselves up to learning more of what you have to say, whether um, it's easy to take or not. And Jesus, you're the one true prophet. So I pray that people would actually take the words of tonight and not just be like, well, Jamin said it, so it must be true. But that they would take it to you and say, Jesus, you told me to test all words. So I bring this to you and ask that you help me test it. And Jesus, you would sit with them. You would sit with me. You would warm our hearts that we would live as you call us to live. And we would provoke both this world and uh, our own churches with your prophetic provoking. So we give our lives over to you. We thank you for tonight. We thank you for community. We thank you that we could be with one another. And we pray that you bring us even closer to you so that we truly would image your trinity to the rest of the world. God, as I was even preaching tonight, I thought of the passage on Mount Sinai where, God, you're up on the mountain, and one of the commandments that you give is you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. And you didn't mean that they weren't supposed to go say, oh my God, even though that may be one of the ways that we can process that. 
what you really meant was I'm putting my name on this this people named Israel. And if Israel is going to carry my name, then they are going to be a witness to me and my character everywhere they go. God, that's all part of the reason that you had to send them into exile later is because the character that they showed the world was not of the one loving Yahweh, the God of the world, the God of the universe, the creator of all things. And so they had to own up to that. God, sometimes we as a church, may it be American or otherwise, Jesus, here in this passage, you keep talking about how you've given us your name and God's name, and God's given you his name. It's Mount Sinai all over again. We are a witness to the one true God of the universe, to Jesus. We carry his name, and our witness has often uh, not gone well. So would you make us more like you, that the world would see you for who you really are? And give us the strength to do it when it's very unpopular. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us tonight, y'all. Feel free to say hello and uh, whatnot. Do social distancing between families if you can. And we will catch you guys later. Thanks.